0: is given to a spiritual or eternal reward or or blessing. You know, if after the church service we all went to the park and set up two big tents and and over the first tent we we put a sign that said, free money and free food, and in the second tent we put a sign that said, uh, spiritual blessings and eternal life, which tent do you think would get more visitors? I mean, I don't think it would even be you know, a comparison. There would be so many more people that would come to the material blessing of free money and free food, and so few would concern themselves with spiritual blessings and eternal life. Now, as Christians living in this materialistic culture, you know, we're, we're constantly tempted to seek after these things, to seek after this materialistic stuff and ignore seeking after and living for spiritual blessings. Where we're tempted to seek after the things of this world instead of seeking after the things of God. Tempted to seek after the temporal instead of seeking after the eternal. You know, this is even seen in our pursuit of Jesus. You know, sometimes when we're only seeking uh, Jesus for what he can give to us, you know, physically, what he can give to us materially, instead of seeking Jesus for who he is and the fact that he offers something far greater than material blessings, something far more valuable than, than physical, temporal things, he offers spiritual blessings, he offers eternal life. Well, this is a lesson that Jesus is going to try and teach the multitude that He fed with five loaves and two fish. This multitude is going to seek out Jesus, but they're ultimately seeking Him because they want another free meal. Hey, Jesus, it was so great that you fed us, and we want you to physically feed us again. And Jesus wants them to understand, I have so much more to offer than just physical, material blessings. I have so much more to give to you that is of such greater value than those things. And that's the lesson that he wants them to grasp. He wants them to see. He's going to teach them why they should seek him, what he has to offer them, what the work is of God that they need to do in order to receive what Jesus has to offer them and also what He will do for those who believe in Him. You know, this is a great lesson for us as well. That that we need to understand these things. We need to know why we should seek Jesus. We need to know what He has to offer. We need to know what the work of God is that we need to do in order to receive the things that Jesus has for us And we need to know what Jesus will do for us who believe in Him. And I believe this is especially important for us in this materialistic culture that we have, that we live in, that we would grasp these things, and that we would understand there's something far greater, far more important than just the material stuff that we can have from this world. And I find that that often distracts us and sometimes even blinds us to what God has that's far greater. You know, we find ourselves living for, pursuing things that are really completely inferior to what God ultimately wants to give to us because we're, we're, we buy into this lie that the material is what is greatest and best. So as we look at the teaching that Jesus gives to the multitude, you know, I want you to examine what you're seeking. I want you to examine what you're living for. And look at your life and look at the pursuits and ask yourself, you know, am I missing out on something far greater? Is there, is there more that God would have for me and I'm missing it because I'm pursuing the things of this world. I'm pursuing just the material and missing out on the spiritual. Well, before we get into this encounter that Jesus has with the multitude, I think it's important to remind ourselves of what just transpired. He feeds this large group, probably about 20,000 people, with only five loaves and two fish. And they respond by wanting to make Jesus their king. Wow, man, you you are a great person to have around. Look what you can do. We want you to rule and reign. We want you to be the one that overthrows Rome. And we're told they were willing to do it by force if necessary. They're going to force Jesus to make Him their king, and Jesus isn't going to have any of that. And so He does two things. First, He gets His disciples. He puts them in a boat, and He says, I want you to go across the Sea of Galilee. I want you to get away from all of this. And the second thing He does is He Himself departs from this multitude. He goes up onto the mountain by Himself alone. And then a storm hits. The disciples are trying to get across the sea. They're unable to do it because the wind is blowing and they're rowing and they're rowing and they're not getting anywhere and they're starting to panic and get afraid. And Jesus, He walks out on the water to them. They receive Him into the boat and we're told immediately they're at the other side. Jesus just takes them immediately across the sea to where they were headed. So the last time the multitude saw Jesus, he's going up on the mountain alone. And now as we pick up the story, it's going to be the next day when they're looking for Jesus. Hey, where's the, the, the man who can make us miracle bread? You know, where is he? We, we need him. We want him. Let's see what happens. Picking up in John chapter 6, starting in verse 22, it says this. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Piberius near the place where they had ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So the next day, the the multitude, you know, they sleep to the night, they get up, they're, they're, they're looking for Jesus, and he's nowhere to be found. And they recognize there's only one boat that's missing, and that's the boat that Jesus sent the disciples across the Sea of Galilee with, but there's no other boats that are missing, so they're thinking, Where's Jesus? I mean, he obviously didn't get in a boat, you know, well, where could he have gone? As they search for him and they don't find him, they decide, you know, he must have gone somehow to the other side of the sea, and so many of them, I'm sure it wasn't the whole multitude, I doubt there was enough boats for that, but this large group of people now goes across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Now, later on in the chapter, where we're going to note that Jesus was in Capernaum teaching in the synagogue. And so this group that comes to Jesus and all that we see for the rest of this chapter is taking place in this synagogue there in Capernaum. And in a synagogue, it's very similar to, to what we do here on Sunday. It's kind of a, a similar to a Sunday service where there'll be teaching and different things. And so Jesus is the teacher. He's there in the synagogue. And this crowd of people, they finally find Jesus and they ask Him a question. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? You see, they recognize, well, wait a second. There was only one boat missing. Jesus, you weren't in that boat. How in the world did you get to Capernaum? Now, I wish Jesus would have answered this question, but he doesn't. You know, Jesus is the typical thing that we see with him in the, the Gospels. People will ask him a question, and his response actually doesn't answer many of their questions. Instead, he gets to the heart of their problem, the heart of their issue. And that's what Jesus is going to do with this group. He's going to get to the heart of their issue, which is why they were seeking him. But I wish he would have first started with, I'll tell you how I got here. You know, in that storm, I walked across the sea. And as I was halfway across, I saw the disciples in the boat. I hopped in the boat. And you know what? Immediately, I took the boat to the other side of the land. I mean, I mean, that would have been kind of a mind-boggling thing of like, wow, that's how you got here. But he doesn't deal with that. He gets straight into the reason for why they are seeking him. Notice what he says in verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So here we see Jesus revealing why this group, this multitude of people is seeking him. Why they left Bethsaida and they took boats all the way to Capernaum. And maybe some of them are even walking to get to this place. Why are they seeking Jesus? He says, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Now we've noted many times that that John is revealing specific signs that Jesus did that prove that he is God. And Jesus is saying, you're not seeking me because of the signs. The sign that they just saw that he fed thousands of people with just five loaves and two fish. That should have been a sign that was clear evidence of who he was. Clear evidence that he is God. Clear evidence that he is the Messiah. You're not seeking me because of the signs that point to who I am. You know, that should have been the reason that they were seeking him. They should have come and said, Hey, we know who this guy is. I mean, he's God. He's the Messiah. We we want to, to follow him. We want to give our lives to him. That's why we're seeking him. But Jesus says, No, that's not the reason. You're not seeking me because of the signs that reveal who I am. Instead, you're seeking me for a different reason. You're seeking me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You guys just want another free meal. You want me to produce some more free bread for you. Some fish. You want more food that's physical. That's why you're here. That's why you're seeking me. So now that Jesus has revealed to them why they sought Him in order to get more spiritual bread, He's going to help them understand, you know what, there's a much better reason to seek me. I have so much more to offer you than bread and fish. I have so much more to offer you than a physical meal. I can provide you with something far more valuable. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. You know, the multitude has just labored to get to Jesus. They're all getting in boats. They're traveling over from Bethsaida to uh, to where Jesus is in Capernaum. And the reason they're laboring is for this food that perishes. You know, they just want another piece of bread. They just want food that's not going to last. And Jesus says, don't labor for food that perishes. You guys have worked so hard to get to me, and you're just going to have something that's not going to last. Don't labor for that kind of food. Instead, labor for food which endures to everlasting life. And there's such a, a greater thing that I can provide. You're coming for the food that perishes when I can give you food that will give you everlasting life. Notice what he says, which the Son of Man will give you because the Father has set his seal on him. The Son of Man can give you this. Jesus is wanting them to see, you know, yeah, I am capable of giving you physical food. I already proved that. But you know what? I can give you something far greater. I can give you spiritual food. I can give you food that will give you everlasting life. And you can be confident that I'm able to give that to you. Why? Because God the Father has set His seal on me. Now this is a very uh, interesting term that you know for us today doesn't hold the same kind of weight you know in that culture you know you would have a signet ring and on your signet ring you would have your own different you know signet that was unique to you and so instead of signing something like we have today our signature is what authenticates a letter what authenticates you know some kind of legal document there you would take wax and you would put your signet ring in there and then that signet would come and that would show this authenticates this is yours this is your possession this is your letter, this is your will, whatever it was. It's a seal that authenticates that something is yours. And so that's what Jesus is saying, is that God the Father has set this seal on Jesus. Well, what's the seal? Ultimately, all these miraculous signs. You know, it's that seal that should show you, hey, this authenticates who Jesus is, but also authenticates that he has the power not just to give you Physical food, but something far greater, spiritual food, which endures to everlasting life. So this multitude labor for that food that perishes, and Jesus is challenging them, hey, I can give you much better food than that. You guys are laboring for the material and the temporal, but I can give you something spiritual and eternal. You know, I think this is a great challenge for us as well. So much of what we labor for, what we work for, is just material. It's temporal. It's physical. It perishes. It doesn't last. And we put so much of our efforts and our labor and our work towards gaining those things and getting those things in this life. And it's not bad to have some of these things. Some of these things are are necessary for living. But you know what? We need to recognize that's not what life's all about there's something far more valuable, far more important to pursue than these physical things. Spiritual things that last forever are so much more valuable. You now, I want you to think about you know, the end of your life when you're sitting on your deathbed and you have a, a time to just kind of look back on your life, look back on what you pursued, look back on what you lived for, look back on, on the impact that you made in other people's lives, and, and what's going to be of value to you. Is it going to be the house that you bought? Is it going to be the cars that you drove? Is it going to be the vacations that you took? Or is it going to be the lives of people that you were able to influence and love? Is it going to be the people that you were able to share the gospel with and see their lives transformed? You know, What is it going to be valuable to you at the end of your life? Is it going to be those material things that are going to perish? Or is it going to be those eternal things that are going to last? Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? You can lay up treasures in two different places, either here on this earth or in heaven. But you know what? The treasures that you lay up here on this earth, they're temporary. They can be taken from you. They can be rusted out and and lost. But the the treasures that are in heaven, they're eternal. They'll never be taken. They'll never be eaten by... uh, They'll never rust over. They're eternal. He's trying to build the case of the eternal ones are far more valuable. Store up treasures that are lost. Store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on this earth. Too often we're working for and laying up for ourselves treasures on earth that perish. And in our pursuit of those things, we miss out on pursuing what's more valuable. We miss out on giving ourselves to things that are far greater, that will last for eternity, pursuing the things of God, living for Him and what He has for us. So Jesus is trying to help this multitude understand you're coming to me for something that perishes, but I want you to know you should be coming to me for something far greater because I can offer you something far greater, something that is eternal. Well, let's see how the multitude responds to Jesus' challenge for them not to labor for food to perishes, but instead labor for food that endures to everlasting life. In verse 28, they say this, Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? This is a great question that this crowd asked Jesus. All right, we've just labored for the food that doesn't perish, and you're saying we should labor for the food that endures to everlasting life. We just did this work, and so Jesus, you're telling us, don't labor for this, instead labor for that. And so we have a practical question, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Well, What's the work that we should do? What's the work that God would have us to do, Jesus You know, this is a question that a lot of people ask. What work do I have to do in order to do the work of God and receive His blessings? You know, this is at the heart of most religious belief systems. Most of the religions that we have in the world today are seeking to answer this question. If you look at what they believe, they're going to give you their thoughts on the answer to this question of what work you must do for God in order to receive God's blessings. Now there's only one right answer to this question. And Jesus gives what that right answer is in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. You know, this is one of the most important statements that Jesus makes. They bring this great question. What's the work of God? Well, what do I need to do for God so I can receive the great blessings of God in my life? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what the work of God is. The work of God is that you believe in in Jesus whom God has sent believing and trusting in Jesus is at the foundation of everything you know our trust in Jesus is how we are saved from our sins our trust in Jesus is how we can have a relationship with God our trust in Jesus is what enables us to have eternity in heaven with God the multitude asks what work must we do and Jesus answer is really you know what There's not a work that you do. What you need to do is trust in me. It's not, oh, I got to do this work and I got to do that work and I got to do this work here, and then that will get me this approval from God, that will get me this blessing from God. Jesus is saying, no, you want to know what you got to do? You got to believe in Jesus believe in who he is that he's God believe in what he's done that he died on the cross for our sin that he rose from the dead you see what Jesus is saying is don't believe and trust and and try to do the works yourself in order to gain God's approval you have to trust in Jesus work on your behalf and then God's blessing comes to you now with every other main religion in the world the opposite is true you know, you look at all their claims and it has this, you know, the similar, you know, reality to it and the claim is the work that you must do for God in order to receive his blessing is some kind of good work. Now, those good works might be different in different religious belief systems, but it's still, you have to do a certain amount of good works in order to receive God's blessing, whether that be heaven or nirvana or whatever the religious belief system may be, but it's still the same kind of heart. There's stuff that you have to do that's good in order to receive what God will give to you. But Jesus says the opposite. No, you have to believe in the good work that Jesus has done on your behalf, not on what you do for Him. You know, this is the most common thought among people today when you ask them about what saves them, what gives you a relationship with God, what's going to allow you to get into heaven. You know, whenever I don't know whether or not someone's a believer, I will ask a question and I'll say, you know what, if you were to die tonight and you were to stand before Jesus Christ, why should He let you into heaven? You know, I've asked that question hundreds of times. Actually, even this week, you know, there's a couple that I posed that question to, and they gave the same answer that I hear so often. And the answer ultimately is, he would let me in because of my good works. And if I kind of press and I talk about their sin, they'll be like, okay, well, he'll let me in because my good works outweigh my bad works. I recognize I do have some of those bad things, but my good works is more than that. And so that's why I'll be allowed to go into heaven. And I'm sure you've experienced this if you ask people that question. But notice, that is not what Jesus says. The work of God is not good works. It's believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. The reason that God will let you into heaven has nothing to do with your good works. If that's what you're relying on, you're going to stand before Him and say, let me in because I'm so good. You're not getting in. You'll never be good enough. Our sin keeps us from relationship with God. Our sin keeps us from heaven. The only way that we can get in is putting our trust in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. That's the only reason that God will allow us into heaven is trusting the work that Jesus has done for us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, this verse makes something very clear. Our salvation from our sin is something that is by God's grace giving us what we don't deserve, what we don't earn, and it's through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting Him. And notice what it's not through. Not of your works. It's not our works that save us. It's only faith in Jesus and God's grace that gives us what we don't deserve, what we have not earned. So the ultimate and most important work of God is that you believe in Jesus whom God has sent. Believing and trusting Jesus is literally at the foundation of everything. It's the foundation of salvation, a relationship with God, heaven. But you know what? It goes far beyond that. Those are kind of all salvation issues, but it's also the foundation of every spiritual blessing that you and I receive. Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now notice the reason why People who get every spiritual blessing. Well, why is it that we receive every spiritual blessing? This verse says, it's because you are in Christ. That's the reason. Not because, hey, you have every spiritual blessing because you've done so many good things and you've earned it and you deserve it. And man, look at what you've served God in this way and how you gave to God here and how you lived your life for God there. Well, now the spiritual blessings are yours. No! Every spiritual blessing is yours. Why? Because you're in Christ. Well, how is it that you and I become in Christ? Well, there's only one way. You've got to put your trust in Christ. And until you put your trust in Christ, you're not in Christ. And once you do put your trust in Christ, that new change, that's who you're in, that's how you now are seen by God, and these spiritual blessings are given to you as a result of trusting Jesus. You know, many Christians believe the only way that they're going to be spiritually blessed by God is if they do all these good things. And they miss the reality of, no, those blessings are yours the moment that you put your faith in Jesus. He gives that to you. He blesses you on behalf of Jesus and what He has done, not on all the things that you seek to do for God. Well, does that mean that good works and obedience to God are not important? No. What it means is that the foundation has to start with our trust in Jesus. And everything else stems from... That foundation of trust and love in Jesus. You know, we need to understand that good works and obedience to God, that's not what saves you. Only trust in Jesus saves you. And once you put your trust in Jesus, now God desires us to obey. He desires us to do what He calls us to do. But it all stems from that initial relationship and trust in Jesus Christ. All the good works, all the obedience should come from that foundation of love and trust in Jesus. You see, good works and obedience, they lose their value when they're not based on a relationship of love and trust. Let me give you an example to to hopefully help you better understand that. For all of you who are parents here, I'm confident there's something that you greatly desire of your kids. You want your kids to be obedient and do good works. I've never met a parent who's like, oh, I want my child to be completely disobedient and do nothing good, only bad things. You know, our desire is, I want obedience and I want good works. I mean, we all want that and we get frustrated when it doesn't happen, but that's our desire. That's what we want from our kids. But I want you to think about something. How much of those good works and those obedient things that your child would do would be devalued if they said this to you? Mom and dad, I will obey you and I will do good works for the rest of my life. But I will never trust you and I'll never love you. How valuable would, those, would that obedience and good works be when they were void of love and trust? Would you want to take that? Okay, I'll take the obedience, I'll take the good works and, and I'll have no love and no trust for the rest of your life. We wouldn't want to make that. We wouldn't want that because we realize that that loses all its value. All that obedience, all those good works, you know, they're, they're devoid of value when they're not centered in that loving, trusting relationship. And the same is true with God. Our works and obedience, they're meaningless without a relationship with Jesus. They're meaningless without that trust and love in Jesus Christ. God says all our works are like filthy rags. I mean, we're trying on our own without a relationship with God. There's no value in those things. But you know what? When we have that relationship with Jesus, when we do stem that obedience and good works from that loving trust in Jesus, then what we do can be such a wonderful blessing to God and to others. So our love and trust in Jesus is not only the foundation of our good works and obedience, but I want you to think of something else. It's also the source of power to be able to do these things. Jesus said in John fifteen four and 5, Abide in Me and I in you, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know, in order to do good works and obey God in a way that's going to bear fruit according to God, bear fruit in a way that blesses God, he says that, you know what, you have to abide in Jesus. Jesus is like the vine and we're like the branch. And if the branch is not connected to, not abiding in the vine, guess what? You separate the branch from the vine, it'll never bear fruit. But that branch stays connected to the vine, abides in the vine, it'll bear much fruit. And that's what Jesus is using this illustration to say, hey, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you want to bear fruit for me, you've got to abide in me. You have to stay connected to me. And then he shares that very important phrase, for without me you can do nothing. Nothing that would bear spiritual fruit. Nothing that would bear fruit in the eyes of God as something of value and worth. And so we need to recognize the only way that we're ever going to bear fruit, the only way we're going to do something for God that is meaningful in His eyes, it comes back to love and trust and abiding in that relationship with Jesus. And so recognize... As Jesus says, well, what's the work of God that you must do? The work of God is trusting in Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of everything. It's not just a salvation issue. It's also all the spiritual blessings that we get. But it's also all the power, the source of accomplishing these things all come back to trusting in Jesus Christ and the work that He's done for us. So Jesus answers this crowd's question. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Let's see how the crowd responds to what Jesus says. Verse 30 and 31. Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus is saying, you got to believe in me. That's the work of God. And notice their response. Okay, Jesus, well, what sign are you going to perform? What work are you going to do so that we might believe in you? You know, what are you going to show us, Jesus, so that we can get to that place? You tell us we've got to believe in you. Well, what sign are you going to show? What work are you going to do? Now, this is kind of you know, a silly question in the sense of, look at what all you've already seen. I mean, wasn't the feeding of the, all these people with five loaves and two fish enough? All the miracles that you've seen Jesus do? I mean, haven't you seen enough signs? But notice there's a specific sign that they want to see. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, something interesting to note is that during this time, many of the rabbis were teaching something that the Bible doesn't prophesy the Messiah would do. The Bible doesn't say the Messiah would do these things. But they came up with this thought that when the Messiah would come, he was going to bring manna from heaven, just like God did back in the time of the Exodus. And so this was a common thing that rabbis were teaching. And it's not something biblical, but it's something that they were saying. And so a lot of the people were now like, okay... When the Messiah comes, that is an expectation. He is going to give us manna from heaven. And so as Jesus says, you've got to believe in me, they're saying, well, all you've got to do is prove it by giving us manna from heaven, and then we'll know that you are the Messiah. So the crowd's asking Jesus, so is this sign. And the sign that we'd like to see is manna from heaven. But notice the people are still caught up on this physical bread. Yeah, we know you fed us with five loaves and two fish, but now we want you to feed us again. Feed us with manna from heaven. We want more physical bread. But Jesus has been trying to tell them, I can give you something far better than that. You're, You're missing the point. Notice how Jesus responds to this request for manna from heaven. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So the people asked Jesus to give them manna or bread from heaven like their forefathers got in the desert. And Jesus' response is, hey, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. You know, Jesus' point is, you know, hey, it wasn't Moses who gave your forefathers bread. It was actually God. You know, you give credit to Moses, but Moses didn't give you that bread. God the Father gave you that bread. And I want you to know that God the Father is offering you bread right now that is far superior to the manna that He gave to your forefathers. You have the true bread from heaven that the Father is giving to you, offering you at this very moment. And the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You know, you guys want manna to come down from heaven to fill your physical needs. Well, God has given you the true bread from heaven that has come down to meet your spiritual needs. It's a bread that gives life to the world. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. Jesus is saying, hey, He's the bread of God. Who has come down from heaven, and he can give more than physical bread. He can give life. Well, notice how they respond in verse 34. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. The multitude's still missing what Jesus is saying. Remember the woman at the well when Jesus says, you know, I can give you living water. And she's like, great, give me this living water so I don't have to come to the well and draw anymore. Jesus wasn't talking about physical water. He was talking about something spiritual. And in the same way, these are like, hey, give us this food always. Man, we'll never go hungry. This will be so great. They're missing the point. They're back to the physical when Jesus is trying to help them see, look beyond that. I can give you so much more. All right, I'm going to make very clear What I'm talking about here, notice what Jesus says now in verses 35 and 36. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet do not believe. Here we have the first of seven I am statements that only the Gospel of John records that Jesus says about Himself. He declares, I am something. This is the very first one. He says, I am the bread of life. You guys want bread from heaven? Well, guess what? I'm that bread. I am the bread of life. And he who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. You know, the physical bread that this multitude kept looking to Jesus to to get just sustains life. Jesus is saying, I can give you something that actually will give you life. Forget the thing that just sustains it. Get the thing that actually gives it to you. Jesus wants the multitude to understand, I'm not only able to meet and satisfy your physical need, I'm able to meet and satisfy something far deeper, something far more important, your spiritual need. But in order to have Jesus, the bread of life, meet your physical or spiritual need, there are two important things you must do. Notice what Jesus says. First, you must come to Him. He who comes to Me shall never hunger. And second, you must believe in Him. He who believes in Me shall never thirst. You know, this brings us back to what Jesus has already told them. The work of God is to believe in Jesus. You want these things? You must come to Me and you must believe in Me. And if you do that, Jesus shares some very encouraging things in the final verses we'll look at this morning of what He will do for those who come to Him and believe in Him. Notice what He says in verse 37-40. through 40. All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And the one who comes to Me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Here Jesus reveals four wonderful things that he will do for those who come to him and put their belief in him and who he is and what he's done. He says, for those who do that, I have four things that I will do for them. First, Jesus says he will not cast out anyone who come to believe in him. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. You know, this is such an encouragement. This is such a great reason to come to Jesus, to come and place your belief in Jesus, because He promises He will not cast you out. He will not reject you. You know, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how many sins you have committed, no matter how deserving you are to be cast out by Jesus, Jesus says, I will never cast out anyone who comes to me and puts their belief in me. You know, one of the big lies of the enemy is that God could never forgive you. That God could never accept you after all the sins that you have done. I mean, look at your life. Look what you've committed. Look at this sin here and look at that sin there. How could you ever think that God would love you? How could you ever think that God would forgive you? That's never going to happen. You're going to come to Him and He's going to cast you out. He's going to reject you. He's going to punish you. He's going to judge you. He wants nothing to do with you. Don't even try. Don't even come to Him. That's the lie the enemy wants because he's desperate to keep us. From salvation. He's desperate to keep us from coming to Jesus and Jesus saying, I don't care how messed up you are. I don't care how sinful you are. You come to me and you put your belief in me and I will never reject you and cast you out. I will save you. I will forgive you of your sins. The second thing that Jesus does for those who come to him and believe in him is he won't lose them. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing. This is another wonderful encouragement. Why should I come to Jesus? Why should I put my belief in Jesus? Well, Jesus says if you do that, you come to Him. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to misplace you. He's not going to forget you. He's going to keep you safe. You know, another lie of the enemy is if you come to Jesus and put your trust in him, it's not gonna last. Oh, you're gonna sin again. You're gonna do this horrible thing, and when you do, you're gonna lose it all. And when you do, everything that you received is gonna be gone. You know, don't even you know try, don't even do it. You know, yeah, you might have had that day where you put your trust in Jesus, but look at how many times you've sinned since then. You're gonna lose it. He's gonna take it all back. No, he's not. Your past, present, and future sin was dealt with at the cross. Jesus says, He will not lose you. So the first thing that Jesus does for those who come to Him and believe in Him, He's not going to cast them out. The second thing is He's not going to lose them. The third thing is that Jesus will raise them up at the last day. This is the will of the Father who sent Me that of all He has given Me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Another wonderful encouragement The first two were kind of negative things that he won't do. And here's a positive thing that he will do. If you come to him and you put your belief in him, he gives you this promise that, guess what? I will raise you up in the last day. He's going to, speaking of the resurrection of, you know what? If you die, it doesn't matter. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to take you to heaven. That's going to be something that I do for you. You're going to get this wonderful new glorified body and you're going to be able to spend eternity with me in heaven. This is a promise that he gives to those who come to him. And put their belief in Him. And the fourth and final thing that Jesus says He will do is He will give them everlasting life. And this is the will of Him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. I mean, this should be the greatest reason, the greatest encouragement to say, I'm going to come to Jesus. I'm going to put my belief in Him because He is the one who promises everlasting life with Him in heaven. He's the one who can give me that. There's no other way to receive it. It's through Him. Trusting in Him. And He offers this wonderful, wonderful thing. Now as I mentioned, there are many religions who will claim, hey, you got to do this work to receive the blessing of God. you got to do that work. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one receives salvation. No one gets to heaven except through Me. There's only one way. Putting your trust in Jesus is the only way to receive these things. So Jesus teaches this multitude And us, as we are now looking at what he teaches, a very important lesson. First, why should we seek him? We should seek him for who he is. That's the biggest reason of all. Because he's God, because he's our Savior, we should seek him for who he is, not because he is a big genie who can give us physical and material blessings. No, he's God. That's why I should seek him. What does he have to offer? He does offer physical blessings, he is capable of doing those things, but he offers something far greater. Far more valuable. He gives us spiritual blessings. He gives us eternal life and salvation. And what's the work of God that we need to do in order to receive what Jesus has to offer? What good work do I have to do? Well, you don't have to do a good work. You just have to believe in Jesus. Trust in the work that He did for you. And what does Jesus promise to do for those who do that? He will not cast them out. He will not lose them. He will raise them up at the last day. And He will give them everlasting life. Jesus wants us to understand he has so much more to offer us than just physical, material blessings. And I want you to think about your own prayer life. In the last couple months, how much of your prayers were all based on, Lord, give me this material thing, give me this physical blessing, do this material thing, do this physical thing for me. How often are you praying for something that's far more valuable? How often are you praying for those people who are lost? How often are you praying for God to use you and change your life? How often are you praying for things that last for eternity versus just things that are for the here and now? I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray. Jesus says, you know, pray, give us this day our daily bread. Well, we should pray that He would provide for our needs, but recognize there's something far more that we should be focused on, something far more that we can live life for, something that's of far greater value there's so much more to life than storing up treasures on this earth are you missing out on some amazing blessings from god because you're distracted in your pursuit of material things distracted in your pursuit of inferior things that don't have nearly the same value let's end with what jesus says in matthew 6:33 seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness And all these things shall be added to you. Don't be like the multitude and seek first physical food. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first His righteousness and trust Him to take care of the practical stuff. Trust Him to take care of the physical stuff. But focus on seeking Him and living for Him and the things that are more important, the things that are eternal, lives of people that you'll be touching, eternity, the gospel, living for God. These are all the things that we should be pursuing over, oh, I want to buy this and get this and and gain these material things. Those things have no value in comparison to the eternal things that God wants us living for. Let's pray. Father, we, I'm sure all can confess to our struggle with pursuing things that really don't matter much. Things that perish, things that don't last. And Lord, I just pray for myself, for everyone here, that You would help us to just evaluate our lives, evaluate our pursuits, evaluate what we are seeking, Lord. And if there are things that we are pursuing that... We shouldn't. I pray that you would help us see that and stop that. And if there are pursuits that we are doing that are distracting from a greater pursuit that you would have us do, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to us as well. But Father, I, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see what is truly valuable. What is truly important in life. And Lord, that we truly could store up treasures in heaven. Those treasures that last forever. Lord, to not be so focused on the treasures of this earth and what we can get in this life. Lord, if we need a heart change, I pray that you would help that to happen. If we need our minds to be renewed, if we need to be able to see things from your perspective more, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our minds, help us to understand that you offer so much more. That you are the source of not just physical blessings, Lord, you are the source of of all spiritual and eternal blessings. Father, we just thank you that you were gracious. We thank you that even with this multitude, you took the time to explain to them what you could offer. You took the time to tell them what they needed to do in order to receive it. You revealed to them what you would do for them. You made it all possible, made it all clear, and just left that decision up to them to choose whether or not they would accept you.